0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: We do call on God in the day of trouble, and one way we do that is by uh, Praying to God, we do that as we come to God and confess our sins, and we'll also be considering today our prayers of the church in our call to confession. 1 Timothy chapter 2, hear God's word. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thus far the reading of God's word. So I want to consider this morning the prayers of the church that we offer up Sunday by Sunday, often uh, men of the church helping us to do so. God wants his people praying for and giving thanks for all kinds of men. We are to intercede as the church for the church and for the world. And we're to give thanks also. Some of you know the, the four categories of prayer, uh, the, at, the Acts model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Uh, those four categories, by the time we come to the prayers of the church and the worship service, we've already covered the first two. A prayer of adoration opens the service, a prayer of confession uh, comes in, in a moment. Uh, at the prayer of the church, we give thanks and we intercede with petitions. And this is one area where worship and the world meet in the service. Uh, The offering is another one. There are plenty of places how the word applies to our lives in the sermon. Confessing our wrongs in the past week. It's important to remember we don't try to shut out the world mentally when we worship God. We hold the world up to God, asking him to have mercy and to bless his creation. So let's confess our sins, sins of despising the world, or chasing after the world, instead of interceding for the people that God has made. Oh come, let us worship and bow down. We'll turn back to the book of Acts, Acts 18 today. Looking at the first half of the chapter, Continuing on with Paul's missionary journeys, last week he was in Athens, and he goes from Athens to Corinth, Acts 18, the first 17 verses. Hear God's infallible word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.' From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. As I've learned about the geography and the topography of the promised of Israel, the promised land, as I've... uh, gone there uh, once 20 years ago Um, one thing you learn is that it's a tough tough life in the desert of course that's kind of obvious but uh, Israel learned that in the 40 years wandering in the wilderness as well God provided just enough just enough he gave manna for every day and they couldn't store up extra to uh, save and have for a rainy day God provided just enough There are trees there with roots that get just enough water, just a few drops to stay alive, leaves giving just enough shade, an oasis with just enough water. I like to think about Psalm 23 in that regard, the green pastures, right? God uh, leads us as a a shepherd beside green pastures, and we often think of lush greenery, but in the land of Israel, if, if you're a shepherd, you don't take the sheep uh, to the lush greenery. That's where the the farmland is. The the sheep have to go to where there's less uh, arable land. And so there's just a blade of grass here, a blade of grass there. And that's the green pastures that the shepherd knows how to find for the sheep. God provides just enough. That's what he does for Paul here in this chapter in Acts 18. God encourages us and he equips us to obey him and to live for him. That's what he does for Paul. Corinth was a prosperous port city, uh, one of the bigger cities of of the Roman Empire, and it was full of idolatry and immorality. One older writer calls it the Vanity Fair of the Roman Empire. Uh, We today might call it Las Vegas. That was Corinth. Uh, They actually had a saying, a figure of speech, that if you went Corinthian, that was like you went off the deep end into indulgence. You, you ran off to Vegas and got married at the chapel there. That's that's to-go Corinthian. That was the city of Corinth. The two hallmarks were their pride and riches and power and their worship of sexual pleasure. Paul addresses both in his letters to them, First and Second Corinthians, you, you'll notice. But God encourages Paul. Uh, so, verse uh, one through three, we see this. Paul leaves Athens, goes to Corinth, finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, just come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Interesting fact here about the the exile from Rome. Uh, there is uh, the Roman historian Suetonius actually corroborates this. Says Claudius, the emperor kicked the Jews out of Rome because of constant rioting over a guy named Crestus. That's what the ancient text says, and we assume that's a misspelling of Christus. So this would mean that the division among the Jews over Jesus was creating a stir in Rome before Paul ever got there, which is probably correct. It isn't Paul who's the only one stirring things up. It is Jesus who said he came to divide, and that's what's happening. So uh, they're kicked out of Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. They're in Corinth, and Paul finds them there. So the first main point today is that God encourages Paul uh, with companions. He's the only one who's gone ahead to Corinth. The rest of his team, his entourage, Silas and Timothy, they're still back in Athens, uh, and and Paul has gone on ahead. He's alone in this wicked city, trying to... um, evangelize, and bring people to knowledge of Christ. So God sends encouragement another way through Aquila and Priscilla. They're in the same situation as Paul, kicked out of a city for following Jesus. And that brings great encouragement to Paul and to Priscilla and Aquila to find new friends, to go through a hard time knowing others around you have gone through it too. And they've survived on the other end. So God encourages Paul in that way. He encourages him also in verse 9 with a vision uh, in, in the night. Do not be afraid, verse 9, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I have many people in this city. So God gives encouragement when it's needed. Now, realize, I, I maybe should have went to 1 Corinthians first. We read 1 Corinthians 2 that, that Paul says to the Corinthians that he came to them, quote, in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. Now, we don't know what that it, it refers to exactly. Was he shaken up after the Athenian Areopagus? Or, or was he taken aback by the pride and immorality of Corinth? Or was he physically sick? Or was he, was he without his team, so he was lonely and, and feeling vulnerable? We don't know what it was. But the great, bold Apostle Paul, type A guy, who we always think of as able and willing and courageous to do anything, was in weakness, in fear, in trembling. And I'd like to encourage each of you, we all get there sometimes in our spirits, do we not? Times when our hearts are frail and fragile, when the smallest wave could capsize and sink us? Scripture calls us to comfort the faint-hearted. So when you are faint-hearted, receive needed comfort in God's Word. Through the people of God, through the Spirit, bring to your mind fortifying truths. We sing it, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. So let's acknowledge that each of us gets in that place of fear and weakness, trembling, timidity maybe. The Psalms help us tremendously there, especially the 40s. But God doesn't mean for us to stay there either. We're always to be humble and to remember that Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. But we do not have a spirit of bondage to fear. The all-powerful God is our adopted Father. I'm paraphrasing now from 1 Timothy. God encourages Paul, do not be afraid. Looking through worldly eyes, there's plenty of reason to fear. Uh, I would say today America looks more and more like Corinth than ever. But God promises, no one will hurt you. Why? Because I am with you. And it's interesting, Jesus says that same thing to the disciples when he gives the Great Commission. I am with you. I will be with you always. To the end of the age. This is encouragement, meant for the mission, and so uh, God gives this promise. Interesting about uh, no one will harm you, uh, that is meaningful, of course, to Paul, because the last three or four cities he's been in, he was physically attacked, right? And even here now, we see a, an, a, an attempt is made against Paul legally in, in the rest of our passage. So when God promises there's going to come no harm to you, it doesn't mean you're never going to be criticized, go through hard times, etc. There will be uh, times when uh, God brings difficulties into our lives. But he keeps us. He preserves us. He gives us ways to, to um, look to him and to be saved. Jesus has many people in this city, verse 10. And he's going to work it so that Paul can evangelize them. And that's what he does. God is drawing people to his son, and he uses external means, physical things in the world, people, us, to do it. And notice here, this verse is incredibly encouraging as well. I have many people in this city. Think of that. Paul has maybe baptized three or four so far. There are many. It's a glimpse of the future that God gives to Paul. Notice there that God knows the future of your story. He knew the future of Corinth and of all the believers there. He knew that Crispus was one of Christ's people. Before Crispus believed Jesus, before Crispus had ever heard of Jesus. God is immutable. We are limited to time, so we have a skewed perspective of the present and and the past and the future. Hindsight's a little bit clearer, but Jesus knows every hair of your head every day of your life. Not just up to October 22, 2023. This should be tremendously encouraging to us as we struggle with decisions to make or as we worry about the future. God is with you. He's on your side in Christ. He knows all about you. I like a thought experiment in this to make this point imagine interviewing Moses when he's 70 years old he's been living in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life he's exiled now he's been shepherding in the desert for 30 years imagine interviewing him at that point in his life yeah i I think I'm about done I'm ready to retire I've had a good life I think God's done with me <laughs> you have no idea Moses what's coming God knows the complete future of your life. There's a countless multitude that John sees in heaven, in Revelation, worshiping the Lamb. And some of those, I'm convinced, are sleeping in right now, in unbelief, within five miles of where we sit. God knows the future. He knows who his people are. He has many people in this city. So God encourages Paul with this vision. Uh, next, God equips Paul as well, and he, and he equips us. Verses 4 through 8, we see this. Uh, first of all, verse 3, he's of the same trade as Aquila and Priscilla. He stays with them and works. So first of all, uh, God equips Paul. He, gives, uh, he provides for him uh, with a job, and Paul goes into tent making for a time. Because he, and we don't know the, the exact details. My speculation is Paul just ran out of cash on hand. Silas and Timothy and the rest of his team have the bank account, so he's out of money. So he's, he's got to work for a time, and so that's what he does. Paul uh, does some tent making. and we've, in, in the church today, we actually use that term to talk about pastors who have a, a, a job besides pastoring as well. So Paul does this. He, he goes back and forth between tent making and uh, preaching and evangelizing full-time. God equips Paul with a job, Second, he's reasoning and persuading. And this is one other way that God has equipped Paul. He's given him gifts in this. That Jesus is the one spoken of in the Old Testament. That he's fulfilled God's promises given there in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Same gospel message that other cities have heard. We hear it almost every week at church. Maybe every day, kids, you hear it in your education, in your schooling. But we cannot take for granted that many have never heard I'm convinced, I've mentioned this in past weeks. I don't think many Americans know what the New Testament claims about Jesus. They know he's a good man, a compelling teacher who got killed for offending rulers. That's about it. After Athens, Paul sees the wisdom of the world does not acknowledge Jesus, a crucified Savior. And so he goes and he preaches the crucifixion. Again, And he says to the Corinthians in his letter, I determined to know nothing but Christ crucified among you. So verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrive, then Paul is more freed up from other matters to speak the word. In other words, he he sets aside the tent making and now he's back full time into uh, converting and evangelizing. Uh, So the point here is that Paul could stop working with the tents for a while and evangelize full time again. Verse 6, the Jews reject him as they did in Jerusalem, as they have in every other city. Uh, Their blood be on their heads, Paul says. I am innocent. So Paul's doing the Ezekiel thing, Ezekiel's watchman, uh, God calls him in, I think it's chapter 34. If the prophet warns the people, communicates God's message to them, then it's on them what they're going to do with that. The prophet's done his job. The prophet's job isn't to make the people believe. Can't do that. But the prophet's job is to bring the message and call them to believe. And then he's done his job and he's uh, innocent. His conscience is clear. So Paul, that's what Paul says. Uh, so the timeline is something like this. Paul comes to Corinth. He converts and baptizes a few. We read about those in 1 Corinthians 1. Justice, Crispus, Gaius, household of Stephanus. And then Silas and Timothy arrive and they baptize from then on and Paul teaches more full-time. The Jews reject Paul, uh, Paul moves into Justice's home, Titius Justice, uh, when Paul writes uh, the book of Romans, at the end of that book he says, he's writing from Corinth, and he uh, says, Gaius greets you, who is my host, Chapter, this is 1623 in Romans, uh, and, and that's interesting, it may be that Gaius and Titius Justice are the same uh, person, and Paul's, uh, and he This tedious justice is hosting the church and Paul as well. That verse at the end of Romans also mentions Erastus, the city treasurer. He greets you. So that's fascinating. Apparently the city treasurer of Corinth became a convert to Christ. He wants to greet the the believers in Rome through Paul's letter there. So more glimpses of of the, uh, the church in Corinth there. But Paul is more the evangelist than the apostle. He's engaging unbelievers on the street. Uh, Timothy and Silas uh, are part of a team as well. They often are ordering the church in Paul's wake, is one way to think of it. Paul seems to have gathered believers at Justice's house. Maybe that's Gaius. It's his guest home, the meeting place of the new Christian church. And it's right next door to the synagogue. (laughs) That's fascinating. Uh, We complain a lot, and rightly, about the disunity of the church. But surely, Paul is not at fault to lead meetings with believers right next door to the synagogue. He's separated from Jews, right? He's drawing Jews from the synagogue to Christ at Justice's house. Is Paul being divisive? Yes. Yes, he is, because they've rejected Jesus as their messiah. Jesus is the point of division. This is appropriate division. And Paul is bringing it. That that may strike us as as shocking, but that's what we need to consider as we consider the relationship between uh, Christian, Jew, Muslim, and so on. Paul is persuading men. He's gathering a group. Uh, The church in this life is always in a state of, of gathering a harvest. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism defines the church that way. I love it. It says that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves for himself out of the whole human race a church chosen to everlasting life and that I am and forever shall remain a living member of that church. It's a great question and answer. I think it's 54 of Heidelberg. God is equipping Paul, Silas, Timothy, Crispus, Justice, Aquila, Priscilla, Erastus, uh, all these Corinthian believers to continue the Great Commission. So God's equipping them. And then the last passage here, verse 12 to 17, God also equips Paul and uh, the Christian church's work through Gallio's judgment. Gallio was a brother of the Stoic philosopher Seneca, which is interesting. Seneca was tutoring Nero at this time. Uh, Gallio holds a high position uh, of proconsul of Greece, Achaia. And the Jews come to him with an ambiguous charge against Paul. He's preaching things that are against the law. So Gallio throws out the charge as invalid. Now, this is a matter of Jewish law and worship. This is not contrary to Roman law. In other cities, the mob would pressure the rulers to throw them out. But here the Jews either can't stir up a mob or Gallio is too powerful to resist them. So they take, so they drive the, the Jews out. Paul doesn't even get to say anything. And Sosthenes is the new synagogue ruler. Remember, the last one converted to Christ, so they had to replace the synagogue ruler. So Sosthenes is the new one, and they beat him, the, the, the bystanding Greeks beat him, frustrated probably with the Jews who are clogging up their courts. So uh, there you have uh, the very beginning, by the way, of the first corinthians that letter the very first verse paul um, lists as co-author of the letter Sosthenes. we don't know if it's the same guy but that would be interesting if the second ruler of the synagogue also converted to christ and uh, writes the letter to the corinthians uh, but uh, if so he's converted after being beaten in front of Gallio. Uh, so there you have the incident how is this uh, god equipping paul well, this ruling gives Paul legal space to operate in Corinth. Here is part of the way Jesus works it so that his people in Corinth hear Paul preach the gospel. They come to faith. Jesus promised no harm would come to Paul. He keeps that promise partly through Gallio, a, a, a wicked, unjust judge. As in the Old Testament, God brought Israel back from exile through Cyrus, a, a pagan king. He comes through a very imperfect man who's willing to let anti-Semitic violence go unpunished. It isn't because Galileo is so wise and great. He doesn't care who the Jews say we should worship. He doesn't even want to waste time listening to Paul's side. That, That brings up an interesting point that politics and politicians certainly affect the shape of the world, but not always in the way that we think they're going to. Sometimes I think we put way too much energy into future analysis, all the political punditry, right? If Trump's the nominee, then these things are going to happen. Well, if Biden wins, then the, those things are going to happen. Well, how about thinking this way instead? Uh, since our culture produces candidates such as these, how should the church speak God's truth right now to our people, to our country? How to address uh, uh, the gospel message uh, to these uh, Americans around us. Anyway, the incident with Galileo, it lets Paul stay for a longer time. And he stays a year and a half. That, that's, that's, I mean, Paul's been going from city to city week by week almost. Maybe he's there for a month, maybe two. Now it's 18 months all of a sudden. Corinth is a, a strategic place. God equips him to stay there longer. So he's got all these opportunities right here. Uh, and God does call us to be responsive to opportunities that he puts in our lap. And, and, and Paul does so. Well, let's uh, apply this to our lives uh, today. In um, Oh, how many is it? I think I've got uh, five things today. Uh, first is, is the new birth. R- realize that Paul is converting many people in Corinth, and the new birth itself, regeneration I'm talking about, is an equipping of a sort, right? Uh, Jesus gets to the point, this point with Nicodemus. To follow God, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. You want to do something for God? Be born. <laughs> All right. That's where it starts, though, with a new spiritual life. We can't do it on our own. That's the, the, the joke of it, right? Your first birth wasn't up to you by the nature of the process. You sure were engaged in the process, though, right? Right? Your heart formed and started pumping. Your lungs took in that first breath of air at birth. So it is with our spiritual birth. Here again is the defining point of grace. We don't get anywhere without God's grace. Paul would still have been persecuting the church without God graciously knocking him off his high horse and revealing Christ to him. God, for some reason, doesn't give the same grace to Galileo. But many in Corinth do receive it and as you receive christ realize what has happened to you in your coming to believe in jesus as your savior and your lord that is our foundational encouragement that is the root of all of our preparation our being equipped to serve him the new birth we have have new life in christ second really quickly friendship in christ paul makes new friends in this chapter at the very beginning aquila and priscilla Uh, New friends. Friendship in Christ is a deep encouragement. This past week, uh, I personally, I myself, met with an old casual acquaintance and took the relationship deeper. And it was a real blessing. A real blessing. Be on the lookout for relationships to cultivate, to encourage, and to equip you in the Lord. Uh, New birth. Friendship. Third thing, vocation. Vocation. Paul's a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla. This is probably a mid-sized business. Paul is from Cilicia, which was famous for its goat's hair cloth from which curtains and cloths could be made. Paul's tents, he was very familiar with tent making. It was what he could do. It was a skill he had. Interestingly, Paul, the tents that uh, Paul and Aquila and Priscilla made probably went to the Roman army. They were one of the major buyers of tents like this. Armies needed tents. Armies on the Mediterranean uh, navies needed sails. And Paul was likely uh, providing uh, sails for ships, either commercial or military. So consider that in your vocation. Uh, The Roman military very often was conquering people in unjust wars. Maybe Uh, Some of Paul's tents or uh, cloths went to the stage in Corinth. The, the, The theater was a huge deal in the major cities of the Roman Empire. Maybe some went to the stage for background props in the theater. This is our work as people, as Christians in the world. In this life, our work is often misdirected by our superiors to poor or bad ends. And, and you know this acutely if you work in a secular environment. We see it all the time. In that sense, the kingdom of this world is not yet the kingdom of our Lord. But this doesn't nullify our obligation to work and to be busy with our hands. It doesn't nullify our obligation to work with all of our heart for the Lord. And Paul says this to the Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the great resurrection chapter, because of all of this, remember, your labor is not in vain. Very last verse, after the grand climax of our our coming uh, transformation into glory. Your labor is not in vain. Even if others up the chain in your employment mess it up, God is pleased with your work. Paul's work was not corrupt because of what people did with his product once they bought it. We can't usually control the whole chain of production in the free market. Be encouraged that your labor is not in vain. Get better equipped for greater service. How can you do your job better? What else can you do? What's getting undone around you that you could help with? Vocation is, is, a, is a big Uh, area of our lives we need to consider and apply to the kingdom of God. So the new birth, friendship, vocation, and finally uh, evangelization. Uh, How is it that Paul is bringing the gospel? How are we to bring the gospel to people? Well, from personal testimony, we've seen Paul in other places in scripture doing this. The Lord has changed my life. Without him, I would still be wondering what life is all about, trying to make my own meaning. That's one way we could say it today. Without Christ, I would still be under God's judgment for my sins. Jesus gives this method when he heals the demon-possessed man, too. The man wants to go with Jesus. But Jesus tells him, go home and tell everyone what God did for you. Personal testimony. We also want to bring the gospel through words of reason, as Paul did in, to the Athenians. Uh, the usual objection to personal testimony or even an appeal to Scripture these days is, well, that's nice for you, but that's not for me. Or that may, or that may be true for you, uh, that, that does nothing for me. Well, a couple of well-placed illustrations there can help based on Scriptural truth. Right? I mean, like think of the world as one big traffic intersection with people on different roads heading different directions. Some kind of traffic light governs the intersection. Everyone either heeds it or you have an accident, right? Or if you jump off a cliff, are you going to fall down and hit the ground? Yes, there's certain th- things that, are just, that God has just built into the world that are going to be true. There's, there's some truth in the universe that holds everything together. Why is it that you're here? How, how can you be here? Who put you here? There, there, there must be some creator that put things together. These kinds of uh, reasonings. Paul does this. Uh, we also, uh, of course, uh, argue from the Scriptures. That this is our starting point, uh, that this is the Word of God. But it may not be the place you start with the person in front of you. You're always seeking to persuade people of biblical truth, but which truth do you start with? That starting with a direct appeal to the authority of Scripture uh, often does not work if they're not convinced of it. And we see Paul do that in Lystra and in Athens. Begin with the God of creation. Move to Jesus as judge. Call them to repent. All with no quotation of scripture at all. He's speaking biblical truth. But he's uh, he's bringing it to people in a way that they can understand. Step by step. Uh, people come with objections. Another uh, trick, uh, not trick, method of evangelization is uh, just simply to ask the person, find out what the objection is. Uh, this is something I learned from Greg Strawbridge long ago. He, he would say, what is it that keeps you from being a Christian? You take on more the role of an, an investigator, an explorer of the other person's mind and soul. Instead of simply preaching at them, you, you find out what it is that's keeping them what holds them back? And then you address that. You don't have to explain every item of systematic theology in one encounter with people, but do try to make the case for the thing that's holding them up. Just start with one area. And I'll close with the gospel message. What, what is it that we're persuading people of? That God is there. That God has spoken. That he's telling us what he expects, as we looked at in the Ten Commandments. That we falling short of that, of his glory, of his standard. That God sent Jesus to be faithful for us. His death is the punishment that we deserved. But Christ's resurrection shows that Christ took that death for us. And we have a new life into which we can enter. And finally, consider um, Paul's uh, I am innocent in verse 7, verse 6. Your blood be on your own heads. Whenever we start talking about evangelism, as I'm talking, we, we often um, we, we feel vaguely guilty, right? And it's important to remove the vagueness. What are your responsibilities? right? You, you don't have an indefinite responsibility, I heard recently somewhere this week, to evangelize every person that you meet. You're not sinning if, if you fail to bring to every person that crosses your path that you go by, to tell them the gospel it's not always your calling what is your calling it goes back to vocation you have a call a vocation to pursue as a student an accountant a wife an engineer a salesman a farmer a husband and so on unless you're called by the church to be an evangelist as paul was you may not abandon your current calling and that'll change what god expects of you in evangelism we see that again in verse 5, where Paul takes up the tent-making for a while. That He was not guilty of failing to be an evangelist by doing that. It was simply what God, God called of him for a time. Neither does God expect you to move to Corinth for a year and a half, or to move to some big city that's more strategic. That's not necessarily our calling either. Much of Acts, we, we say it this way, much of Acts is prescriptive. Excuse me, wrong way around. Much of Acts is descriptive. It's describing what happens. It's not prescriptive. It's not everything in the book of Acts is is something that we have to carry over directly and do in our lives. But are you prepared to speak to others briefly and plainly about the Lord? Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you? There are plenty of scriptures like that that call us to be ready even if we're not meant uh, to evangelize full time. Who would you call for help if you got in over your head trying to help someone, trying to bring the gospel to someone? You know, the beauty of this is that we can prepare to speak to others simply by thinking through and expressing gratitude for how God has worked in our own lives. Worship is a wonderful preparation for evangelism. We take home things that we learn in church, the ways that we interact with people, And just the way we interact with people sometimes brings questions. That brings to mind Rosaria Butterfield again. She was just on World Magazine this past uh, day or three uh, speaking again about uh, five lies of the world tells us today. Wonderful writing she does. Uh, But again, she was converted simply by going to dinner with a pastor in his home several times in a row. So the way we're called to live is often evangelism in itself. Well, God encourages us, he equips us to live for him. First, in giving us new life, he gives us friends, he gives us work to do, and he gives us people to whom we declare the good things God has done for us that make us glad. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you that you encourage us, that you equip us. uh, By the working of your Spirit, Uh, By what we learn about you and your word, Lord, we see uh, a myriad number of examples in scripture and in church history of ways that you provided for your people when it looked like all hope was lost. Encourage us, Lord, in the same way. Uh, Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you that he... For the joy set before him endured the cross. Lord, help us to endure whatever uh, difficulties you are putting in our paths right now. Uh, For you are growing us, sanctifying us in the grace of the Lord. Help us to trust that, to look to you for guidance, for deliverance, for provision. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, who is the ever-living word and we see as he us to Timothy chapter 1 for our communion exhortation, verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is a table of grace. Let's consider what that means a moment. Grace is not some spiritual ether or gas or substance that we can bottle up and distribute. That isn't what's happening with these cups of wine and with this bread. Neither is grace something that you can have by yourself at all. Because grace is a relational quality. For grace to be present, there must be at least two people. Grace is favoring someone, especially when they don't deserve it. Grace acknowledges a ruptured relationship and makes a way back to favor. And this table does that. We see in the broken bread, the poured out wine, that God was so offended by our sin that it called for the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we see in the same bread and wine a way back to God's favor. We believe and so we receive daily bread, spiritual bread, union with Jesus forever. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. So come, for all things are now ready. Come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do invite you to the Lord's table. All those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome the body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, Christkirkmi.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.